Welcome to Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast, a member of the Pharmacy Podcast Network and a partner of the ACCP Critical Care PRN. And I'm your host, Nick Peters. Wherever you are and however you are listening, thank you. Long time no talk, friends of the pod. Happy 2023 to you and yours. I guess first things first, uh, let's kind of fill you in on what's been going on in my world, where I've been, why you haven't heard from me. Um, most know I've worked uh, overnight in the hospital for about three years, but what many don't know, um, I guess is like the toll that it just takes on my body, on your body, especially when you, when you do it for, for years in a row, not necessarily when I'm working at the hospital per se, but it just feels like every other time I'd be exhausted all the time, you know, feeling like I had to like drink a coffee before going somewhere like a, like a pre-workout, like a pre-meeting or something. Um, and then of course, right, that's the cycle of then you have a hard time going to sleep and you wake up and you're tired and it's just like a, a dog chasing its tail. I think if you've worked nights or evenings or had a weird schedule like that, you probably understand what I'm saying. Um, and one of the things that I've noticed through my time talking with other pharmacists and then just, you know, in my place of work is it's just, um, pretty telling how, it feels how much help it feels like we need on the front lines, how exhausted people are, how much burnout there is from a, a multitude of things. You know, it's been an exhausting three years um, and I am no exception to this, right? So I'm a firm believer in work-life balance. Um, I try to create boundaries as much as I can. I, I'm not the best at it. Everyone will tell you that. Um, but when I had a job, right, primarily working, that's always going to take precedence. Patients are going to take it and the family's going to come second, right? And so um, what's actually happened in the past month or so is I've actually stepped away from my full-time pharmacist job. So I just work PRN, just enough to keep my foot in the door. Um, but what does this mean for right now, right? It doesn't mean forever. My my nephew goes, congrats on retiring. It's like, I wish, buddy. Um, but for right now, I'm going to be focusing uh, full-time on the podcast for the near future, right? It doesn't mean necessarily forever. Who knows what will happen from this? But, you know, not only will the episodes be more frequent, um, we're, I'm aiming for weekly, uh, every Thursday, um, Wednesday night into Thursday, something like that, um, we'll have an episode. I think I have some ideas that will make these things even more fun. Now, I think some of these ideas include, you know, social media highlights, like we'll have a whiteboard of the week or maybe a tutorial that you need to see. Um, have a few guests to be available for rapid reactions, right? If there's like an important practice changing late breaking article, right? Someone will come on and we'll talk about it for 20 minutes, give you what you need to know in kind of a timely fashion. Um, Another big segment um, is going to be Nick's Need to Know. And basically what that's going to be is um, me bringing in headlines from all over the place, right? The ASHP Newslink, things that have gone through ASA, ACCP, SECM. We'll kind of collaborate, plus anything that's come through the mainstream media, right? And we'll just talk about things you need to know. Um, sometimes there may be um, more, sometimes there may, not, might be less. Um, and it's just going to be me trying to deliver some of those things. I feel like one of the hard things can be is just to like keep up with the headlines and all those kinds of things. Um, and then we're still working on some things in the background. I don't want to reveal everything yet just because um, some of them are just ideas and they may not come for, to fruition. But 
don't worry. Um, you aren't just going to be uh, stuck with me all the time. I'll still be collaborating with uh, subject matter experts, discussing clinical issues. Uh, we're going to have recurring guests. Um, and then ultimately, the, the hope is a, a better job of highlighting all the work you have done, continue to do, um, get some notoriety for all that. Uh, other big thing, I'll be at SECM this year. Um, uh, I'm actually a speaker for the pre-Congress session um, discussing how smartphone apps can help you um, during your day-to-day -day life. Um, it's part of the SECM pre-Congress session on Friday, and it's, uh, it's a heavy hitter lineup, if you haven't heard. Um, Friends of the pod include both Brooke Barlow and Aaron Barreto as speakers. And then Brian Gilbert is our moderator. Uh, we're all crossing our fingers. We get to see him in a onesie. So uh, if you know Brian, give him a little peer pressure there. Um, hopefully I'm able to see some of you there. That'll be nice. It's been a while since I've been um, live in a um, conference. So that'll be really cool. Now, the real reason we're here, right? Today, we're talking about articles from December of 2022 in this installment of the Literature Review Series. A couple things. Yes, we have skipped some months. Um, the hope is that I'm able to get these out in a more timely fashion so that we're not reviewing April articles in September, right? And it's just, it, it, that was a, a nature of the beast, but hopefully that won't be happening now. Um, and then, um, it is a busy time for everybody, right? So normally I'm able to bring on residents, students, and things like that. But uh, today it's just me. Um, we'll hope, I'll hopefully have some fun. It shouldn't be too long. Um, and then for future episodes, yep, there'll still be the possibility of guests. But in times that they that it doesn't, I think we'll kind of have me to fall as a backup on. Um, so more to come there. Now, today we have our top five articles. Now, wait, wait, wait. I thought it's always the six pack of studies. Well, that's one of the big changes, right? Sometimes there's only like a featured four. Maybe there's a top five. Maybe there's a six pack. So um, it's going to be kind of up to the discretion of us of, of the what we think the heaviest hitter articles are. So those are the ones we talk a little bit more in depth on. Um, and then we're going to have sections afterwards followed by one that's focusing on kind of blood pressure management, one talking about IV fluids. We get lost in our mind in the neuro section. And then as always, we close out. That'll never change. The front of the fridge, shouting out all our pharmacist featured articles. So I think we have a great episode planned. I'm so excited to release the first pod of 2023. But first, a word or two from our awesome partners. QXMD builds mobile solutions that drive evidence-based care in clinical practice. So check out Read for easy access to research personalized for you. Calculate for over 500 easy-to-use decision support tools and learn to earn CME online in minutes per day. Try them today at qxmd.com slash apps. Again, that is qxmd.com slash APPS. The Critical Care PRN is dedicated to fostering the role of critical care pharmacists as essential members of the multidisciplinary patient care team. The Critical Care PRN's goal is to optimize drug therapy outcomes by promoting excellence and innovation in clinical pharmacy practice, research, and education. For more information, including how to become a member, go to critprn.accp.com. Again, that website is critprn.accp.com. One quick thing I forgot to say, the other kind of last update is um, the Pharmacy Dose Pod has made a big time. We have a burner phone. 
Um, and that is going to be available for mailbags, questions, um, anything that um, people want to kind of ask anonymously. Um, so let me give you that phone number here. We'll, we'll be posting this everywhere, but it's 317-342-2858. Again, burner phone, um, not my primary, not anyone's primary, but hopefully, you know, we'll have some mailbag questions coming up and things that hopefully we're able to, I'm able to get a little response, interact with you all and make it so that it's, uh, um, still a little kind of private in a sense that like, you know, not necessarily going to know who this is, um, gives you some anonymity kind of asking some of those questions, but all right. Um, time for our top five. The top five featured articles of the month of December. Top five, top five, top five. And we start off with the aid ICU trial. Now, this is from New England Journal of Medicine. Um, classic multi-center, double-blind, randomized controlled trial in uh, 13 international countries. And it's looking at haloperidol for the treatment of uh, delirium in ICU patients. And they looked at a primary outcome of number of days alive and out of the hospital at 90 days. So not only 90 day mortality, but were you out of the hospital at 90 days as well? So they, the study kind of, they did an initial like retrospective cohort they published back in 2018. And they wanted to look at the prevalence and variables associated with haloperidol use. And then they, they found a much higher usage rate than expected. Like almost 50% of patients received haloperidol. So they conducted the aid ICU trial to see if haloperidol improved mortality. Two trials to give you a quick reminder about. The Mind USA, the classic, found no difference in mortality when delirium was treated with haloperidol or zeprazidone. And then uh, Matt Dupree and John Devlin, two awesome pharmacists, just published a research article um, from Dutch ICUs in 2021 um, that actually found um, early treatment of delirium with haloperidol was associated with a dose-dependent improvement in survival. So, the, so the 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 Dutch ICU trial seemed to be kind of the the one of these is not like the other because most of what we've seen is that haloperidol doesn't do a whole lot, but. Um, they found that in their retrospective cohort, so many of their patients got it. And so that is why they then developed this um, trial for adult patients. And they included any of them who tested positive on a delirium screening test. Um, and they're randomized one-to-one to receive haloperidol or placebo. So haloperidol was 2.5 milligrams uh, three times a day with breakthrough PRN doses up to 20 milligrams. So they enrolled a thousand patients, which was their power, but thirteen was exclude. Thirteen patients were excluded, so just missed power. So just keep that in mind. Um, classifying the type of delirium, fifty four percent was hypoactive, with forty five percent being hyperactive. Now, when they look at the medium dose of the haloperidol group, it was eight point three milligrams. So not a whole lot higher than that set seven point five milligrams that they were getting uh, from the two point five TID, and only about thirteen percent of patients in each group needed rescue medication. So there was no difference seen in like the composite outcome of uh, mortality or days alive out of the hospital. Um, and I think, you know, this is another trial really that highlights that treating delirium doesn't really change your outcomes. Once it's there, the problem is there. It's about prevention and all the things that we know um, that can help with that. So uh, just another kind of poke that prevention uh, uh, what is it, an ounce of prevention is worth a pound of cure. And uh, delirium is the uh, complete, he completely agrees with that. Now, the second trial has an awesome name. It's the Canary Trial, the Canary, right? 
but it's looking at catheter-directed thrombolysis versus anticoagulation in intermediate to high-risk PEs. So when we think about treatment of PEs with thrombolytics, the intermediate risk is where we have the most questions. We know thrombolytics help with, with the high risk, right? It increases bleeding, but, but it, it helps for those really high risk patients who are maybe hypotensive or in shock, right? Um, we've, now, the PATHO trial looked at the use of thrombolytics in intermediate risk PE, and they found that they help, but with a, a trade-off of an increase in bleeding. So what this trial looked at was they went a step further to see if it would improve RV function, right? Because that's one of the biggest things you see recurring afterwards after a big PE. So this was an open label parallel group masked endpoint RCT that was catheter directed thrombolysis. So it was TPA at 0.5 milligrams an hour in each catheter um, versus anticoagulation. So they used low molecular weight heparin, noxparin, a mix per keg every 12 hours. Um, and this was completed in two Iranian ICUs and this was published in the JAMA Cardiology. So the primary outcome was the proportion of patients with an RV to LV ratio greater than 0.9 at three months. So what does that mean? RV recovery is defined as having a ratio of less than 0.9. So if it's still high, right, greater than 0.9, the RV function still fully hasn't recovered. And if the thrombolytic worked, right, you'd think that, that all that would start getting better. So adult patients presenting within two weeks of symptom onset not in shock, right? They excluded high-risk patients and uh, they have the, the PE seen on CT were included. So 85 patients were um, ultimately included in this final analysis and 54% of them received catheter-directed thrombolysis. So the looking at the RV to LV ratio, it was greater than 0.9 and 27% of the catheter-directed group and 52% of the anticoagulation group at 72 hours. And even though all the numbers got better, the gap in percent still remained that at 90 days, 4% of the catheter directed versus 13% in the anticoag only group still had that elevated ratio. Now, unfortunately, this is all hypothesis generating because the trial was ended early due to recruitment logistics due to COVID. Um, but we're certainly going to have more info soon. Uh, the the high patho, patho three, and PE tracked all uh, studies that are going to hopefully give us a little more info um, into the use of thrombolytics, especially in these patient populations. Now, I can say with a fair amount of confidence that all of us are aware of the beneficial effects of RAS inhibitors on the progression of kidney disease. However, what I didn't know, and what maybe some of you might not know, is that most of that evidence is for earlier CKD, and there's not a lot of great data on what to do in more advanced CKD as you get to stage three, four, go into that end stage. So um, researchers um, in the United Kingdom developed the STOP-ACE trial. So it's the renin-angiotensin system inhibition in advanced chronic kidney disease. Now, this is in New England Journal of Medicine. And this multi-center open label trial took place in 39 centers in the United Kingdom and included adult patients with CKD stage four or five. Now, a couple things with these, with this. The patients had to be receiving a RAS inhibitor for six months. And at that time, you, they had to have lab evidence of a further declining renal function. 
Um, and when they calculated this, they calculated an EGFR and they used the MDRD equation just uh, for those keeping track at home. Uh, two groups, right? One continued um, the RAS inhibitor, which would be ACE or ARB, um, and the other discontinued the treatment. And the primary outcome was EGFR at three years between the groups. Now, they used a repeated measures mixed effect linear regression model. What does that mean? That's a great question, but I can tell you what they ended up finding. The more complicated statistics get me too as well. So they looked at a total of 17,290 patients. Now to that number, 7% were potentially eligible. And then from there, 411, so 2.4% out of that initial almost a little over 17,000 patients were randomized. So that's 411 patients with 325 actually completing the follow-up. So at the three-year follow-up, they found no difference in the primary outcome of EGFRs between the groups. Now, during the first year, it makes sense. The, the patients who discontinued the RAS inhibitor had higher blood pressure, but once they started another agent, um, no differences in blood pressure was seen. I mean, the other thing um, that this trial was looking at was not only like blood pressure um, but it was also looking at like progression of the renal disease, right? So um, it was similar rates of RRT required between the groups as well. So now keep in mind, the study was conducted in the UK. So non-white patients aren't very well represented. I think it was a little over 80% of the patients were white. So just keep that in mind when we're thinking about the um, external validity. Um, so, you know, it didn't hurt our kidney function, Um when they continued it in advanced CKD, but it also didn't improve anything either. So um, I think you could probably start seeing both of those things happening and it'll be kind of more of a uh, patient-specific decision. Now, the ISAR-REACT-5 trial is a landmark cardiology trial. Um, and the, the study we're going to highlight next is a post hoc analysis of this, but let's just take a Quick step back. So the ISAR REACT-5 trial compared prasugrel to ticagrelor in ACS, and it has a composite primary outcome of death, MI, and stroke. So uh, what they found was that prasugrel had a 2.4% reduction in the primary outcome. And this was driven not by mortality, but by a, um, a reduction in recurrent MIs. Now, if you remember, we've discussed a subgroup analysis of this trial previously on the pod on a other literature review series episode, and this was looking at ticagrelor versus prasugrel in patients who underwent PCI. Now, the thing is, the ISAR REACT-5 trial was a big PCI trial. 84% of patients underwent PCI, and this subgroup analysis showed a higher rate of mortality, stroke, or recurrent MI, right, that composite outcome in patients treated with ticagrelor driven by an increase in recurrent MIs. So we're on the same page now, right? Perfect. So what this trial in the Journal of the American Heart Association looked at was uh, patients who had a prior MI and comparing the effect of treating these patients with ticagrelor or prasugrel in ACS. So they kept the same primary composite endpoint of all-cause death, MI, or stroke, they included about 4,000 patients in the analysis, 15% uh, in a previous MI, 84% did not. And of course, right, this would be expected that patients who had a previous MI had a higher rate of comorbidities like diabetes and hypertension. So the analysis looked at two things. So first, it looked at the incidence of the composite outcome based on the history of MI, right? Did you have an MI or not before? And 
the if you've had a previous MI, the, you experience the composite outcome 12.6% versus 7.2% driven by that increase in recurrent MIs. Um, no difference in major bleeding. So second, it looked at the incidence of the composite outcome in patients with a previous MI, comparing ticagrelor versus prasugrelor. Right? So now we're getting into the drugs. And what they found was similarly, the ticagrelor group had a higher a rate of that composite outcome, 15.4% versus 10%, driven by that higher rate of MI. Um, this was even seen in patients without a history of MI, 4% versus 2.6%. So we have a subgroup and now another post hoc analysis has confirmed. Feels like now we'll kind of be waiting on the RCT, um, looking at ACS patients who have had a prior MI. Um, but this data uh, certainly is promising for uh, the Prasugrel enthusiasts out there. And closing out the featured articles of December um, is an article that was published in uh, AJHP um, entitled Pharmacist Authors of Emergency Medicine Organization Work Products Pertaining to Pharmacotherapy. So this was a, a paper that was led by pharmacists in and around Chicago as well as Iowa. So what does that title mean? Well, I think all of us who work clinically in the ED know how valuable pharmacists and really just the multidisciplinary team in general is. Um, and despite all of this, right, these authors identified that very few pharmacists are on writing groups to help with guidelines or policies. Ironically, a very sharp turn from the inpatient side of things, um, where pharmacists, I feel like are involved in, if not create, uh, most of the protocols. So, uh, these authors looked from 2010 to 2021 um, and found that there were 76 emergency medicine publications. And these were these were like guidance documents or things done by um, a primary emergency medicine group. And 47 of these uh, focused on pharmacotherapy. And how many pharmacist authors? Five. Wait, wait, wait. No, no, no. Not 50 and not 5%, not even 15 five pharmacists out of 248. Um, and when they kind of looked at other uh, specialties or disciplines, they found that the pharmacist involvement was between about 40 and 67%. And when I look at articles to possibly include in these literature review series, I, it's something that I frequently look to see as well as, you know, what are the credentials of who wrote this article? Um, now, if that was that, if this was the only thing kind of written about this, it would still be very interesting. Um, still would have talked about it. But I think what what really made this um, uh, a little different, I think, than normal was the a response letter was written to HHP. Um, it was almost a rebuttal in a sense. And one sentence uh, from the reply um, stood out. The onus is on us pharmacists to forge relationships with non-pharmacists and non-pharmacist organizations. So based on previous statements from some of the emergency medicine groups, I assume this was written by a physician, right? Reminder, the big group EMRA uh, made a statement in 2020 that only physician trainees can be called residents or fellows. A statement that was signed by nine physicians and only physicians. How dare you water down and help us in the ED? You will, we, we will take that title. So 
The rebuttal is actually written by two pharmacists who are very well known in the ED world. It feels like basically defending the current process. Um, the authors replied to to this rebuttal, and you know I agree with the author. It felt like a lot of the things that they brought up were either not of the scope of this article, or okay, the, the these authors point out that they may have missed maybe missed one document that was a white paper that the authors didn't include, but let's say they did for whatever reason. Okay, our number went to six from five, um, and I guess I'm saying all this of. Um, what person would look at that data and be like, yep, the pharmacist's involvement, we don't need any more. This is great. Um, you know, I just wish it feels like we could be on the same team and there'd be a different way to approach this. Um, you know, I haven't talked to either of those two authors, um, but it, it certainly isn't the vibe that I would want from a, um, fellow pharmacist, um, kind of looking in the same, you know, in through those lenses, I guess. Um, let's kind of shift. We finished our top five, top five, top five. Now let's go to, um, highlight a couple articles that are talking about blood pressure. Um, and the first, uh, article, the authors discuss, uh, blood pressure and the risk of rebleeding and delayed cerebral ischemia after aneurysmal subarachnoid hemorrhages. So the authors discuss these being two of the biggest contributors to poor outcomes in those aneurysmal subarach patients in the Journal of Critical Care. So this was an observational multi-center study in Amsterdam taking place from 2003 to 2011, looking at that primary outcome of re-bleeding or delayed cerebral ischemia in the ICU. Of note, right, they look just in the ICU, not the hospital. Um, the other kind of piece to, as an FYI, is these centers had different blood pressure management strategies. Um, and the strategies changed um, over time since that, right, the, the study period was so long. Um, you know, look at, look in the article um, for those things. I'm not going to necessarily review the whole thing here. Um, they included close to 1,200 patients. Rebleeding occurred in 4% of patients with DCI in 9%. So what this study found was that um, if you maintained a map of less than 100 that reduced your risk of rebleeding. They found that at the six hour, three hour, and one hour mark um, prior to a bleed. And then what they also found was that if your MAP continues to go too low and you have your MAP less than 60, that actually increases your risk of delayed cerebral ischemia. And they found that in the 24 hours prior to. So, um, you know, all these patients were receiving other standard of cares like nemotapine and things. So um, an interesting study, it shows that um, keeping watching the blood pressure and hemodynamics are, are really important in all of our patient populations. Now, the second blood pressure study, oh, it's great. It's the battle of the thiazide diuretics, right? Some of our young guns listening, chlorthalidone is probably a, a cobweb name, something you maybe not have heard of. And that's compared against hydrochlorothiazide. And they're, they're looking at these two agents and determining, um, is there any difference between them? And I'm sure you're thinking, why do we care? Well, I will tell you why. Um, older physicians love chlorothaladone. Anecdotally, I 100% confirm that, and I have zero stats to back that up. So that's number one. Number two, Ironically, it's not on the $4 list at most places when I did a quick a quick glance. Um, so it's more expensive than hydrochlorothiazide. And then there's some studies suggesting that chlorothaladone has a higher risk of adverse effects without some of those cardiac protective effects. 
So the diuretic comparison project, they included a little over 15,000 patients. And this is a VA study. Um, so the big, um, uh, all the, uh, the VA patient populations. And basically the group that was prescribed hydrochlorothiazide is either 25 or 50 milligrams. One group continued that and the other transitioned to chlorothaladone at a similar dose, 12 and a half or 25 milligrams, depending on what they were taking. Um, the primary outcome was a non-fatal cardiac event or a non-cancer related death. Um, and they found no difference in the composite primary outcome. Really, the only thing they found was a safety difference that chlorothaladone caused more hypokalemia, but you could also argue that they were checking for it more because they were worried of it. So it's kind of the chicken or the egg, but um, ultimately there's no real difference between them. So, um, I mean, if it's not broke, don't fix it. If you have patients that are doing great on it and, you know, costs and everything aren't an issue, fine, but keep this in mind if we're trying to optimize things, um, kind of looking at these things that if, if cost is prohibitive, um, maybe we don't need to uh, continue that uh, same older thiazide diuretic. It feels wrong talking about IV fluids without Anthony Hawkins, but here we are. Um, two studies I want to highlight here. The first was a fantastic summary of studies looking at balanced salt solutions in the ICU uh, from Brian Kopp and colleagues out of Tucson, Arizona. Now, the thing that I liked about this is study or this review is it looked at the four most recent studies, split, smart, basics, and plus. If you remember, right, not all these studies showed the benefit with balanced salt solutions compared to abnormal saline like we may have thought. Um, now, within the article, there is an awesome table that does a really good job highlighting some of the differences. Um, and you can kind of compare the different trials and see based on different, like, you know, how many of them what was their median albumin? How many? How much fluid did they get before? Da, 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 da. Um, I I really like that the authors kind of review the discussion points that I think we've all had at one time or another, talking about these trials being like, why did it not show what we expected? Right. So it's like, hmm. Well, when did they give vasopressors, or how much fluid did they get beforehand, or you know what what was the pH of the balanced salt solution they used? All those things. So they kind of go through all that stuff, which is which I really enjoyed. Um, but they the the paper makes the the comparison or the note that this feels like saline versus um, balanced solutions is going to go the way of crystalloid versus albumin. Oh no. <laughs> so I'm, I'm guessing now that we've had these big heterogeneous ICU populations that um, what the authors recommended is future studies should really look at homogenous patient populations, to try to figure out if there are specific groups that may or may not benefit um, from a specific fluid. So really good one, definitely one to tuck away. And obviously if we talk about IV fluids and resuscitation, we have to talk about de-resuscitation. And intensive care medicine did just that. So it's appropriately titled Everything You Need to Know About De-Resuscitation. And it talks about the ROSE model, end organ damage, secondary to fluid overload, and what are some management strategies. So I don't necessarily have a whole lot per se to highlight here, but I think it's a decent article for learners who may be just a little less familiar with this topic, something to kind of tuck away. Um, it's got a couple cool graphics and things like that. Um, but 
a good one. We got to remember fluids are drugs as well. So we're cruising around um, the backside of the track here. And now we are switching into our neuro section. And let's go ahead and get... I get lost in my mind. That's right. So we're going to highlight a couple awesome articles. Um, the first, uh, two pharmacist authors from the University of Michigan analyzed the evidence for valproate boxed warnings. And so this study that's published in the Annals of Pharmacotherapy, valproate, not all boxed warnings are created equal. And it specifically looks at the teratogenicity, hepatotoxicity, and pancreatitis risks. And within the section that I really like it, it describes what the labeling says or what the FDA recommended. And then they go into detail behind the evidence behind it. You know, what does that mean, et cetera. So I think it not only gives you, helps you understand what is, you know, on the label, the package insert, but then also what's the evidence behind it? What new evidence do we have? Um, so really cool um, review article on a drug that I think all of us use in various things of critical care. And I think it just um, highlights a few of the risks with this uh, specific drug. I mean, thumb drive worthy 100%, especially if you're working in a neuro unit. Now, the next article is a case report describing a four-factor PCC after indexinate alpha administration due to an expanding ICH. Um, so Matthew Blackburn from the University of Kentucky, aka Lex Vegas, published this case report describing its use in an 86-year-old female who was receiving Eliquis. So the the way the process went was the patient received indexinate alpha transferred to the receiving hospital. Yeah, I, I'm not going to lie. When I first read this article, I was like, whoa, University of Kentucky has indexinate alpha? Okay, sidebar over. So they got indexa, they transferred to the receiving hospital, and the imaging was worse. And uh, the anti-10A activity was still detectable. So you knew something was still there. And again, I'm going to highlight this, this phrase. I love it. Through the collaboration of the neurology attending, neurology resident, neurology pharmacist, and emergency medicine pharmacist, a dose of 25 units per kilo is given. I love that. Collaborate, a team effort. Everyone kind of brings their ducks to the table. You create the best decision for the patient. I love that. Um, you know, Scott Dietrich, the uh, PCC PharmD, highlighted the lack of data on administering both agents. So, uh, Matthew, kudos to getting this case report out in the wild. We uh, certainly appreciate you. Now, an intervention seen in severe cases of ICH, right, is the placement of an external ventricular drain or an EVD. Now, the researchers in Munich, Germany, investigated the differences in CSF when collected from the proximal port or the distal port. Okay, now let's take a step back here, right? So, the reason why this matters is the proximal port of the EVD is closest to, right, the brain, your ventricle. So, right, you don't want to manipulate it because you have a risk of infection. But the distal port is all the way above the collection bag, right? So, it's far away. So, the concern right? You're balancing things. You don't want to worsen things or cause like a intraventricular infection, but then you also want to make sure you're getting the right data, right? You're getting CSF, you're monitoring it for a specific reason. So uh, this study had 20 patients 
and they all had at least two samples. And what they found was that there was good agreement um, between the samples. Uh, they had a goodness of fit plot. I mean, they compared things like protein, glucose, IL-6, ferritin. Um, so again, not likely practice changing for pharmacists, but I always find this stuff interesting um, and just kind of um, cool to know some of those like differences. And then lastly, so the Neurocritical Care Journal, it has a series highlighting neurocritical care through history. Um, and this paper uh, that I want to talk about, it highlights the discovery of acute alcohol withdrawal as a cause of delirium. Man, I know there are people thinking like, wait, wait, wait the discovery Yes, yes, yes. When I say a history, so this paper was done in the 40s or 50s. And many physicians in the US thought that delirium was the result of alcohol intoxication and not abstinence. Not shocking. The rest of the world recognized that delirium was associated with abstinence. And it took the US a little bit to uh, catch up. Now, this paper took an unexpected dark turn um, because it kind of introduces the research and then it and it describes it, goes into detail with it. And the research occurred in prison where prisoners were given as much whiskey as they wanted for a time period and then it abruptly stopped. So it says study volunteers. I'm putting that in parentheses because, um, you know, this is all, everyone there were former heroin or opioid addicts. They were serving prison time. So I have a hard time believing there was tons of volunteering. Um, and they did this research. And of course, what they found was that tremors, hallucinations, seizures, um, they all happened at various time points. But that was one of the first kind of big articles that kind of opened our eyes to this. Um, so I point this out, um, not necessarily to highlight the, you know, unethical research practices in the U.S. Unfortunately, this is another sad example of it, but uh, I wanted to highlight it because it just shows, right, that wasn't that long ago. And it shows how much progress we can make in medicine and how things change. Um, the other thing that this author deserves a huge kudos for is they were able to bring in a Delirium Tremens beer reference into the article. So, um, plus one gold star, put that on your bingo card uh, for... Uh, Dr. Widgedix. Um, so awesome, awesome article uh, from Rochester. So we appreciate you. And kind of a, a, a fun new segment is going to be uh, the most fun article of the month, my favorite headline. Now, we may not have one every month, but oh, baby, do we this month. So it's from the American Journal of Emergency Medicine. And the authors from Rutgers looked to characterize ocular injuries associated with landscaping tools. All right, let's get into the nitty gritty here. So most common tools responsible, a lawnmower and a lawn trimmer. That's like 72% of cases. Okay. So primarily occurs in summer months, on the weekends, and men aged 40 to 60. So guys, take notes you feel like you're at risk for an ocular injury, um, you know, put this in your argument to uh, avoid some landscaping. Uh, they found that the yearly average was just under 17,000 cases per year. So whew, uh, that's, a, that's a lot more than I was expecting, but I always like those fun things, kind of characterize what we see all the time. And now we're rounding home. We're ending 
at the front of the fridge with some awesome pharmacist-driven studies here. So we almost have two themes within the pharmacist-driven front of the fridge section. Um, the first is we have two great studies looking at AFib management in the emergency department. So the first came out of Royal Oak, Michigan, looking at rate control in heart failure patients. And they compared IV push metoprolol and diltiazem. So 193 patients were included. Baseline characteristics are pretty similar, except there was a higher baseline heart rate in the diltiazem group. Now of note, right, when we're looking at heart failure patients, this was all heart failure comers. So the baseline EF was 48% and only about 30% had HEFREF. So pin in that, we'll get to that in just a second. So the primary outcome of successful rate control at 30 minutes, and they defined that as less than 110, um, there was no difference between groups. And they looked, the average doses were about five milligrams of metoprolol and about 15 milligrams of diltiazem, um, plus or minus based on some dose distributions. Now, what they found was that diltiazem worked in about half the time, 13 versus 26 minutes, and they had a lower heart rate 30 and 60 minutes afterwards, but they all had a similar rate of, of reaching that goal. Now, the, the study also kind of broke up and they looked at HEF-PEF and HEF-REF subgroups um, and didn't really find, they found similar results. And most importantly, they didn't find adverse uh, safety outcomes in the HEF-REF group. So, um, uh, interesting study. I would definitely be curious more on the HEF-REF patients. But again, this seems to be in line. They mentioned a few more studies that show this. So, it looks like... Uh, a few more studies kind of showing that it's probably okay for acute management. And a second study uh, compared second-line agents. So it looked at amiodarone and digoxin for heart rate control, and they looked at within the first 12 hours of admission. Now, they chose 12 hours because they wanted to try to capture everything that happened in the ER, right, with boarding and things like that. So kind of a creative way to do that. Um, there were 74 total patients. There were 37 in each group, and all patients received a dose of a beta blocker or a calcium channel dose prior, right? It's the second line. Now, they were unable to match these patients due to the sheer uh, low number of patients receiving digoxin. So that's amazing. I love, I love that sentence right there. Um, your hospital is hashtag blessed. Good for you. Um, now, there was no significant difference between heart rate control within the first 12 hours, but what they did find was that patients who received amiodarone, they had a higher rate of hypotension, right? We could see that. But then they also had a higher rate of conversion to normal sinus rhythm, okay? Then the other thing of note that this uh, kind of small study found was that uh, patients who got the amiodarone as their second-line agent, they needed less adjunct agents in the 12 hours after administration. So about 50% of the digoxin patients needed a rescue med in 12 hours after, and only about 16 of the amiodarone group did. So um, I think a, a pretty important thing to point out um, from the perspective of kind of um, sustained control. And then kind of the next little, you should say, subsection is looking at some drug-drug interactions. Um the first study looked at, you know, researchers from Ohio State looked to determine the bleeding risk when receiving a DOAC and fluconazole concomitantly. So they reviewed records from 2016 through 2021 and then randomly selected patients to have 108 in each group. So the concomitant DOAC and fluconazole group were more commonly in the ICU and had a lower baseline hemoglobin when they're looking at baseline characteristics. Now, when we go to results... 
Bleeding was about 32% in the co-administration group compared to 19% when taking a DOAC alone. But once they adjusted for confounders, there was no longer any statistical significance. So one big thing that I, I did not know that was an independent predictor of bleeding at 30 days was the use of carvedilol. So the thought is it's due to its uh, P-glycoprotein inhibition, increasing DOAC exposure. It's one of those, I feel like I probably knew that at some point and I, I must have just forgotten it because that's a that's definitely something to, to tuck away and keep in mind. What an, uh, a really cool pearl there. Um, and then finally, when they're looking at the fluconazole dosing in this study, patients only receive 400 milligrams. So if you're treating, I mean, we have Hoosiers over here. We got big boys. So if you're having to do the 800 or higher doses, um, that might possibly change uh, what you find. But uh, a really uh, awesome idea for something that we have a hard time monitoring regardless. So really cool. Closing us out today is a fantastic review article from UCSD. And it discusses drug-drug interactions in patients with pulmonary arterial hypertension. So the article starts with a review on the endothelin pathway, um, ultimately reviews all the pathways, um, kind of a good refresher, especially if you don't frequently treat pulmonary hypertension. And it gives you detailed discussion into those drug-drug interactions um, and then gives guidance on how to prevent them. So a really great article to save on that thumb drive. And that's, whew, those are our December articles. Boy, that was a great month, man. That's, I'm always impressed. People are able to do so much towards the end of the year. Um, loved highlighting these. It's awesome to get back in the swing of things. Um, remember, I'm on Twitter. I'll be active on Instagram and all these things a little more as well. So reach out, give me a follow, pharmacy to dose, TO to dose, or via email, pharmacy to dose at gmail.com. Friends of the pod, you're the best. Remember, reference list with articles is featured in the episode description as well as our website. And until next time, I'm Nick Peters, and this is Pharmacy to Dose, the Critical Care Podcast.